First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23, Paul said, I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he defines the, three, the threefold nature of man. Man is a spirit being, he has a soul and he lives in a body. We know that uh, the Bible tells us that God created man in his image. John 4.24 says God is a spirit and therefore by necessity if we're created in the image of God, man has to be a spirit being. Now we also saw, um, uh, look, have looked uh, a number of times at a scripture in uh, Proverbs chapter 20 in verse 27 where it says the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord searching all the inward parts of the belly. Another translation says uh, the lamp of the Lord. The spirit of man is the candle or the lamp of the Lord. Obviously the 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 word picture that is painting for us is something that lights your way in the dark. We might, if we were writing it today in modern day, uh, um, using modern day vocabulary, we might say that the spirit of man is the flashlight of the Lord. Because when you're walking in darkness, you need something to guide your steps so that your steps are sure, so that you don't trip, you don't stumble, you don't fall. Well, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing because nowhere in the Bible can you find where the scripture says that God uses your mind to lead you. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 3, it says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and that's referring to the Spirit, and lean not to your own understanding. Yet so many Christians are looking to develop their minds or or gaining knowledge uh, of the Word of God, and they think the knowledge itself will cause them to know God's plan and God's purpose for their lives. But the Bible says that God leads you through your spirit. Romans 8.14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Well, how is he going to lead you? How's the Holy Spirit going to lead you? Thank God he can. Thank God he will. But how is he going to do that? Verse 16 says, Romans 8, 16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, not with our bodies and not with our minds. Now, it's an interesting thing that so many Christians, at least in my opinion, you, you judge this for yourself, but in my experience, and uh, which is the basis of my opinion, it, uh, it seems to me that most Christians are wanting to find the will of God by external circumstances. They want to look at the, the circumstances of life. They want to look at their feelings. They want to look at the things that they think and use that to be the guide or the, the landmark for what they believe might be the guide or the leading, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And that's not the way it works. It's just not the way it works. Uh, but you might say, yeah, but Pastor Mike, look at the Old Testament. Look at how God led people into the Old Testament. Nobody was born again under the Old Covenant. Nobody could be recreated. Nobody could be a new creature in Christ in the Old Covenant. And the people that God did lead in the Old Covenant, by and large, He led through external circumstances because they were only natural men. They were dead men. Spiritually dead men. And as a result, the few times, and it's not very often, but the few times in Scripture in the Old Testament where God speaks to people, He spoke uh, spoke to more than just one person in private. Those times, uh, by and large show where everybody heard the voice of the Lord. In other words, God spoke primarily in the Old Covenant with an audible voice. In other words, he had to manifest himself in the physical realm for man to understand. Now, you can see the same thing in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, and Acts chapter 26 when Paul's talking about, or the Bible's telling us about his own experience. Acts 22 and Acts 26 is Paul telling about it. Acts chapter 9 is Luke telling about it. Luke says in Acts chapter 9, that when Paul and his company was on the road to Damascus, he said their light shined a light round about him, round about all of them, that was brighter than the noonday sun. And Paul fell down. And he heard a voice which said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? You know the end of the story, how Jesus identified himself to Paul and told him to go into the city and it will be told him there what to do and so forth. 
the Bible says immediately following that, it says all the men were astonished because they heard a voice, but they didn't see a man. Well, if they heard a voice, then the voice had to be audible. In other words, Jesus, even in New Testament times, when he dealt with an unsaved man, talked in an audible voice. He had to appear in the physical realm. Now, in Acts chapter 22, Paul, uh, speaking before the council in Jerusalem, gives a little bit more information about it. He says that the people, uh, everybody fell down, everybody saw the light. I'm sorry, he said that everybody saw the light, but they didn't hear any man. That doesn't mean they didn't hear the voice. We already know they heard the voice. It means they didn't understand what the voice said. So even though Paul tells us in Acts chapter 26, talking before Agrippa, King Agrippa, telling his own testimony, he said that he heard him in the Hebrew tongue. So even though he's speaking Hebrew, and the other people we have to assume would understand Hebrew, because they're from Jerusalem, they didn't understand the words that he was saying. But they heard the voice. Now in Acts chapter 26 it says, not only did they see the light, they heard the voice, although they didn't distinguish what the man's words were, and it says they were all fallen down to the ground. So that's pretty good evidence. you got three witnesses of the same event where God's appearing in the physical realm. So many times he did that in the Old Testament. When Jesus appeared to Moses and talked to him in the burning bush, he entered the physical realm. At least to some degree. I don't know if it was completely physical because, uh, well, I guess we should, we should just leave it at it was a supernatural encounter in the physical realm because the burning bush, the bush burned, but it didn't burn up. But it's still a physical realm. It's still operating in the physical realm. But once Jesus came to live on the inside of us and give us a better covenant established upon better promises, he quit talking to man in the physical realm. And to look for him to do so is to make a grave mistake. Now, I'll remind you also, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Really, when it comes, uh, when it comes down to spiritual things, and, and I, I don't want this to be academic. We could talk about interesting points and stuff like that. I've studied this stuff for 30 years. And so there, there are things that I could uh, share with you and we could think, wow, isn't that interesting? But I don't want this to be an academic exercise. Since the Bible says that the Holy Ghost is going to lead us by the Spirit of God, and He leads us by the Spirit of God because He lives in our own spirit, He dwells within our own spirit, and therefore He makes contact with our spirits, not our souls or our minds, and not our bodies. Since that's the case, then victory in life, being guided by the Spirit of truth who always leads you into all truth, then victory in the life comes down to spiritual perception, spiritual understanding, and spiritual sensitivity. So I don't want this to be uh, an academic exercise. I want it to be something that helps us. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul's talking about being filled with the Spirit. He said, what is it then? I will pray with the Spirit and I'll pray with the understanding. Now, why did he say that? Why did he say I need to pray both with the understanding, or with my mind, in other words, and pray with my Spirit? Well, he said in the previous verse, 14, 14, 1 Corinthians 14, 14, he said, for if I pray in an unknown tongue, my Spirit prayeth. But my understanding is unfruitful. The Amplified says something really good on this. It says, my spirit prayeth, my spirit by the Holy Spirit within me prayeth. But my understanding is unfruitful. I like that because it brings out the, the, the reality that the Holy Spirit is the one living inside your spirit that gives utterance that bypasses your mind. It's your spirit that's praying, not the Holy Spirit. It's your spirit that's praying, but the words that are given to your spirit to pray are from the Holy Spirit. Well, it clearly shows the pattern and the principle. 
Because the things that God gives you by the Holy Spirit to your own spirit bypasses your mind. But with that in mind, turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. It's real easy to talk about some of these things and, uh, and sensationalize some of it and miss the real blessing and benefit and, and truth that God wants us to see. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is quick and powerful. Weymouth's translation says, Full of life and power, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. In other words, it's saying, The word of God is so sharp, it's so, so keen, it's so critical, that it'll divide even between soul and spirit. Now, the way that Paul is saying this, I believe Paul is the writer of the book of Hebrews. You can prove that any number of ways. But since the Holy Spirit is impressing the author to tell us something, the context that he's writing in is this is how important the word is. Because it's the only thing that can divide between soul and spirit. And, folks, I would submit to you that that's the problem that most of the church world has is distinguishing between soul and spirit. It's pretty easy to distinguish between the inward man and the outward man. You can distinguish between the body and the spirit man. But you sure have a hard time distinguishing between soul and spirit. How many times have I heard people say, well, Pastor Mike, I don't know if this is the Lord or if this is just me. What do they mean? If they mean just them, the real them that's created a new creature in Christ Jesus, then that's a safe God because that's where the Holy Ghost lives. But what they mean is, I don't know if this is just my own thinking or if it's the Holy Ghost bringing something to me. And if you can learn to distinguish between soul and spirit, and that's why I say I don't want this to be an academic exercise because if you can learn, if you as a believer can learn to distinguish between soul and spirit, you got it made. This is the, the, the realm and the area where there's so much difficulty in the church world. Notice it says the word of God is full of life and power. And sharper than any two-edged sword. How sharp is it? It's so sharp that it pierces even to the dividing asunder or dividing between soul and spirit. And of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Now the word discerner means judge. Is a judge between the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Folks, this word heart is not the same word that's used as uh, spirit earlier in the verse. It's not the same word that's used. So when it's talking about heart here, he's not talking about the thoughts of the spirit man. He's talking about the soul. In other words, it says the word of God is the judge between the thoughts and the intents of the soul, the inward man. He is the inward man. Look back with me to, uh, I think we need to look at Luke chapter 16. We looked at this when we first started the series, but it's been a while. And there's some things that I want to bring out to you or, or at least remind you of that we talked about before. Luke chapter 16 Jesus tells us a story beginning in verse 19. He says, There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores. Now notice in both verses Jesus said this was a certain man. The word certain means for sure. It means certainty. So it can't be a parable. There's no way you could use the word certain in a parable and it makes sense. Because a parable is something that is like something else. For example, Jesus used parables to explain the kingdom of God. He said the kingdom of God is like a man sowing seed in the ground. Well, he didn't say the kingdom of God is a certain man sowing seed in the ground because that means it would exclude everybody except that one guy. 
So when Jesus says there was a certain man, rich man, and a certain beggar named Lazarus, he's talking about real people. Just as much as Mark chapter 5 says there was a certain woman with an issue of blood that came and touched Jesus. This is a real person. This is a real thing that happened. And Jesus is telling us by the inspiration and by the revelation of the Holy Ghost how things operate. So he said, in a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed from the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Notice the beggar didn't cease to exist when his body was put in the ground. The beggar died, meaning his flesh, his body was laid in the grave some way or another. His body expired, but he continued to live. There's a man on the inside that's eternal. The beggar died and was carried. He was carried. The real him was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. He lived on too. And it says, and in hell he. Well, it wasn't his body because his body's buried. It doesn't tell us about the beggar's burial, but it tells us about the rich man. I don't know. Maybe it was a big, important affair. Maybe everybody in town showed up for the rich man. But it said, in hell, he, he continues to exist after his body expires. And in hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torments and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Clearly, spirits have eyes. He's not talking about his physical eyes. He's talking about his, the eyes of the spirit man, the inward man. And in hell, he lift up his eyes and being in torments, he seeing and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son, remember. So he must be able to remember. Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, father, that thou would send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him or them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one raised from the dead. One rose from the dead. Now, without going into a lot of detail, we did this a couple of weeks, a couple of different times when we first started the series. And if you weren't with us, I encourage you to get that, because we went into much greater detail than we can here. But please notice that there are three things that are intact with the, um, uh, uh, the, the rich man in hell. His mind, his will, and his emotions. Now those are the three things that make up the soul of man. Abraham says, son, remember. Well, that's a function of the mind, isn't it? You wouldn't be able to remember if you didn't have a mind. So when he says, son, remember that in your lifetime, there are things that he can remember. So his mind is still operational. His will is intact because he wills two things. He wills for Lazarus to come cool his tongue. And he wills for Abraham to send Lazarus back to the earth so his brothers not come. So his will is operational. He's telling what he wills to take place. And neither one of them are going to happen. But he's expressing his will. The third thing that we see is that his emotions are there. 
His will is for Lazarus to go back and keep his brothers from coming to that place of torment because he cares about them. That's an emotion, a function of emotion. It's love in action. <laughs> At least it's love attempted to act. He really doesn't have the opportunity or the power to do it. And it's not going to happen, but it's his care and his concern. Those are our emotions. Those are byproducts of love. It's his care and his concern for his brothers. Now, he wasn't concerned about his brothers in that way when he was here on the earth, was he? He didn't go to his brother's house before he died and said, now, now guys, I need to make sure that we're all right with God. Notice he's experiencing torment. We would expect that to be a part of the emotions too. You know what's interesting to me about this? We see his, uh, his mental faculties, his cognitive abilities, operational in hell just as much as they were operating here on the earth. So the soul, the mind, the will, and the emotions has to be part of the spirit man. The soul has to be eternal just like the spirit is eternal. Don't they? Else why would they have lived on after his body expired? What's interesting to me about this are the things that he didn't say. He didn't say, hey, where am I? Are you people over there? Where am I? And why am I here? He didn't look at Abraham and say, hey, you, you with the long beard, who are you? You seem to be in charge over there. What's going on? And we didn't ask that. Now, why didn't he ask that? Is it possible that he's heard the story of, of hell? He's heard the story of the spiritual, the place of the spiritually dead. So that when he finds himself there, he says, snap. Here I am. Is it possible that he heard the preaching of the Messiah and the keeping of the law and he rejected it, hoping that the, that the, the preaching that he heard was, uh, was inaccurate? I guess that's possible, isn't it? But he sure seems to know things. Now, here's why it's interesting to me. If he knew those things and these were things that he would know because of what he hear, heard here on the earth, why didn't he do something about it while he was here? Is it possible, and it is, that when the body is removed, the veil of the flesh is removed, then you're able to see the difference between heaven and hell clearly? Is it possible that the limitations and the, the blinding of the eyes, physical eyes, through the physical body, the phys five physical senses, is it possible that that's the real battle when it comes to getting people to accept what's real about heaven and hell? He doesn't need anybody to preach to him about how this is a bad place anymore, does he? He doesn't need anybody to preach to him about Abraham's bosom being a place of comfort. He doesn't even question, why are those guys having it so good over there on the other side? There's so much left out of this story. It seems to me that if, and I'm not suggesting that this is a complete story, Jesus is just telling us the part that he wanted us to see. The difference between heaven and hell. And really it points to him. If they won't hear Moses and the prophets. Then somebody being raised from the dead. Is not going to convince them either. But that verse is really important too, to. In my opinion too. Notice it. Let's read it again. It's verse uh, 31. 
Abraham said unto to the rich man, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. You know why the rich man is in hell? Because he wasn't persuaded that what he was hearing about heaven and, and Messiah and so forth was accurate. Now, again, I believe the reason that he wasn't persuaded is because he was living his natural life instead of being concerned about spiritual things. And, folks, whether you know this or not, Judaism, particularly Old Testament Judaism, was all about the blessing of Abraham here on the earth. It just had an attachment concerning the promise of a Messiah to come. But the Jews don't even today believe that the Messiah has anything to get you about, has anything to do with getting you to heaven. You remember all the people that came to Jesus and said, good master, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? What are they looking for? They're looking for the Messiah to free them from the Romans. They're looking for a natural savior. They're not looking for a spiritual savior. They're not looking for somebody to do anything about their sins because quite frankly, they couldn't care less about their sins. They've got a sacrifice for that. Judaism is not about the forgiveness of sins. It's about a ritual sacrifice, but they've missed the point entirely about not being in right standing with God. Because as far as they're concerned, as far as the Jewish nation is concerned, hey, we've got a sacrifice that makes us in good place with God and nobody else in the world, in the world has anything. So we're God's chosen people. So they're not looking for anything spiritual. But now all of a sudden, the rich man in hell, his eyes are open to the spirit realm. And notice it's his soul that's in operation. Now when I say his soul, I'm talking about specifically the mind, the will, and the emotions. And these things, uh, it's, uh, well, they're difficult, difficult to describe in some ways, yet I think we have a greater, um, uh, a greater opportunity to understand than ever before, than any generation ever before. It's kind of like this. The head's part of the body, but it's distinctly different from the rest of the body. Right? But if somebody, if you saw a corpse and the head was cut off, you wouldn't call that a complete body, would you? I mean, you would call it a body. But you'd recognize and understand something's missing. Something really important is missing. Right? Well, in the same way, the spirit is like the body, the headless body, and the soul is like the head. The inner man is both spirit and soul together. Now, with that in mind, turn with me over to Romans chapter 9. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 10. Remember what we just read? Abraham saying, if he's not, if your brothers aren't going to listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be persuaded, even though one rose from the dead. Let's start reading in Romans chapter 10 and verse 8. It said, but what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy heart and thy mouth. I'm sorry, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, meaning the spirit. That is the word of faith, which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart, the spirit, man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Can I ask you a question? The mouth, the confession that's talked about through the mouth, is that the physical mouth that he's talking about, or is he talking about the mouth being part of the soul? In other words, when you speak in other tongues, the Bible says that's your spirit speaking. Right? But your understanding is unfruitful. What's the important part? Is the important part the physical action of your tongue and your lips? Or 
Let's take it out of tongues and use it to use a different example. Let's say the Lord prompts you or impresses upon you to tell your neighbor or tell somebody at work or somebody, whoever, somebody you come across, a certain scripture. That's the simple gift of prophecy. Speaking by the direction of God to edification, exhortation, and comfort. Let's say that you come across somebody, whether it's a loved one, a co-worker, or whoever it might be, and you happen to know something about their situation. You know they're going through a hard place, and all of a sudden... A verse of scripture, an encouraging verse of scripture just is real heavy on your heart. And you know from the inside, you just know, I need to tell this person this scripture. Well, what's the important issue here? Let's say it's revelation by the Holy Ghost of what the person needs. It's God helping you to give them something that they need. What's the important issue? Is the important issue your willingness to speak? Or is it the words themselves? Well, as far as the other guy's concerned, it's the words. But as far as you're concerned, it's the attitude of the heart to be willing to say something. So here we're talking about the, with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. It's talking about the action of the spirit through the physical body. But it's not the body that makes the difference. And the only difference and the only benefit that the body speaking or acting brings about is because it's prompted by the spirit. That's the real reason confession is important. Confession is important because it's the will of the Spirit expressed through the physical body. You know as well as I do that you could teach a parrot to say Jesus is Lord. And that's not going to save the parrot. So it's not the physical words alone that make the difference. Can't be. It's not the sound. It's not the words that does the job then, is it? At least not by itself. It's got to be something from the heart, from the spirit, from the inner man. Now, what is it that determines whether or not somebody confesses Jesus as Lord? Isn't it their will? Didn't Jesus say, whosoever will, let him come to me? Didn't he say, uh, I, I, those that come unto me, I will in no wise cast out? Whosoever will? Isn't that what he's talking about? Isn't that what these verses are all about? Verse 10, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, the spirit man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The implied part, the understood part is, according to the will, which is a part of the soul, the operation of the soul of the individual. He explains, for the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there's no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That has to be an act of the will. Right? That's a function of the soul. How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? So then... Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Now, what is he saying here? He's saying very simply, isn't the implication... Well, let me ask it this way. Maybe it will become clear if I ask the question. Isn't the implication that for somebody to receive Jesus as their Lord, they're hearing something that they've never heard before? Or if they've heard it before, they haven't heard it in the same way before. Or if they've heard it a thousand times, something happens on the inside of them that causes them to make a change in their will so that now they accept it. Right?
What makes the difference in somebody getting saved and somebody hearing and not being saved? Their will? The operation of their soul? Jesus talked about this very thing when he was talking about uh, the sower sowing the word. He said the four different types of ground, the seed that was sown by the wayside. He said the wayside gets the same word that everybody else does. But he said immediately the devil comes and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. Takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. Takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. How can the devil take away something from your heart? How can the devil have access to the spirit of man? Well, if he's an unsaved man, Satan is his God. Satan is his father. But how does that work? Same way we see it work in other ways. The devil says, oh, that can't be right. You know better than that. How in the world could somebody dying 2,000 years ago make a difference for you? Turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Let me show you something else about this. It's not Mark chapter 4. I'm sorry. It's Mark chapter 7. We're talking about the, the dividing between the spirit and the soul. I don't want to read the whole thing here. Jesus is uh, beginning in chapter 7. The Pharisees come together and the Pharisees question Jesus and say, Why do your disciples transgress the, uh, the tradition of the elders? Uh, well, let me read verse 5. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Jesus calls them hypocrites. Says in verse 8, he said, Here's what you guys do. You lay aside the commandment of God and hold the tradition of men. As the washing of pots and cups and many other such things like this, you do. In other words, he's saying, here's your problem. You guys are hypocrites, and here's, your, here's the reason why. You're hypocrites because you take the Word of God and set it aside. But then you take the doctrines or the traditions or the, the, the ideas of men, things that men have come up with, and teach them like God said so. Teach them as if God commanded these things. In other words, they've made a substitution for what the truth of the Word is by what they think a good Jew ought to operate, or how a, Jew, a good Jew ought to operate. Now, notice verse, uh, uh, well, verse 9. We better read these next few verses. And he said unto them, Full well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own tradition. Now, remember, that's their question. Why do the disciples not keep the tradition of the elders? Jesus said, You've thrown away the word of God so you can keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whosoever curses father or mother, let him die the death. But you say... Here's what you men have come up with to substitute for the word of God. But you say, if a man shall say to his father or mother, it is Corban, that is to say a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. Now, we don't understand too much of what's going on here, but what he's saying, he's uh, describing a Jewish practice that was uh, uh, adhered to and and, uh, taught by the, the rabbis. And that was that you can buy your parents off. In other words, instead of having to honor your father and mother and take care of them, do whatever you, you can or should, be, should do or what's right to do for them throughout their life, you can just give them a gift up front and say, this is to show that I've honored you for your whole life. Verse 12, and you suffer him no more to do aught or anything for his father or his mother. Now, notice he said in doing this, verse 13, making the word of God of none effect through your traditions, which you have delivered, and many such things like do you. Now, notice what he's saying. The word tradition here means preconceived idea. It means reasoning. 
In other words, he's saying, the way you've got it figured out has made the word of God of none effect. One translation, or several translations, say nullify. Other translations say void. It literally means to make powerless, to cancel out, to make powerless. Now, we just read over in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that the word of God is quick and powerful, full of life and power, and sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God will change anything. The word of God is the most powerful thing there is in the universe. Yet Jesus is saying they've taken the most powerful thing in the universe and made it null or void of power. Why? Because of their thinking. That's product of the soul, isn't it? In other words, he's saying your soul makes the difference in whether or not the word of God is going to be powerful, full of life and power for you, or whether it's going to be void of any power whatsoever. So the soul's pretty important, wouldn't you say? Now, there's a lot of examples that we could use. We're, I've already used up my time pretty much. But uh, let, me, let me give you some examples to, to try to solidify what I'm trying to say. We know of a lot of examples that we could use that are very common to us because of the things that we believe. For example, healing. The Bible says without question. Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we were healed. It says he shed the same blood for our physical sickness, our physical well-being, our healing, as he did to, cover, to pay the price for sin and even poverty. The Bible's real clear on that. I mean, you've got you've to say that some parts of the Bible don't belong to us to come up with the idea that that's not true. Yet so much of the church, maybe the majority of the church, believes that that's not true. Why? When the Bible is clear on the, on the subject, why do so many Christians think that God uses sickness to teach us? Why do so many Christians flip the condition in Jesus' day when Jesus healed because God was with him and the people that he healed were sick because of the devil's oppression? But nowadays, the modern-day church says, well, God makes people sick so that he teaches you something. So it used to be in Jesus' day that the devil was the one making everybody sick. And now, in the modern-day church, in the minds of so many Christians, now God's the one making people sick. I'm not sure exactly where that flip took place, but that's what a lot of people believe. Now, folks, that's, that's absurd. But it's absurd only to the people that know what the Word says. Yet Jesus paid the same price for the people that believe God makes people sick as He paid for you and me who know the truth of the Word. Now, what makes the difference between us and them? We will receive what the Word says because we don't have some preconceived notion standing in the way to block the power of the Word. So what is it that robs a believer of something Jesus legitimately paid for? In this case, in in the case of the example that we're using, healing. What is it that robs a believer of healing? A preconceived notion. The traditions of men. Do you see the point we're trying to make? That's why it's so important. That's why James said, James 1.21, that the saving of a soul comes down to receiving the engrafted word. That's why Paul talked about in Romans chapter 12, verses 2, or well, verse 1 and 2. Verse 1 talks about present your body a living sacrifice. Verse 2 talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind. The reason that Christians don't know the will of God is because they haven't renewed their mind to the Word. Because once you accept the Word of God as truth, it solves so many questions that the modern-day church has about what God's will is. 
So much of the church world is struggling. Does God want to heal everybody? That's not a problem for me. Because I've accepted what the word says. So many Christians, let's put it over in salvation. Let's say somebody hears about Jesus. Let's say they grew up in church hearing about Jesus all their lives. Maybe as they've uh, come to be of age, an adult on their own. Maybe they've come to the idea, the knowledge, they've accepted the notion that Jesus is not the only way to God. That there are many ways to God. That's a pretty popular thought. At least if you if people talking on TV or any representation of the way it is. There are many ways to God. Well, if there are many ways to God, then that's going to be a roadblock in a person's thinking that will hinder them from ever receiving Jesus, no matter how many times they hear the gospel preached. Their preconceived idea keeps them out of the things of God. Now, folks, whatever it was, the rich man in Luke chapter 16 had some preconceived idea that caused him to go to hell. There was some element, there was some function of his soul because for me, I have to accept that he knew something about it. Now, he didn't know everything. Once he got to hell, he didn't know everything. But he knew things that he didn't act on here on the earth. Now, all of a sudden, it's clear to him. So then what can we conclude that he determined or what influenced his soul to create those roadblocks that caused him to go to hell? Had to be something of the physical realm. Now, I think I said something earlier to this effect. Our generation should have a better understanding of spiritual things than anybody else. And the reason for that is because we understand computers. At least we know what computers are. Maybe you understand computers. I I can, you know, go on Facebook, but (laughs) that's about it. So we, we may have understanding on computers in different ways, but we know how computers work. Now, if you're, if you, some of you young people, you're not going to know what I'm talking about. But if you remember when personal computers first came out, you remember how there was nothing on them? I mean, they just had an operating system and you, <laughs> what was it, MS-DOS? Is that what it was called? Man, who could figure that stuff out? But they were, they were clean. They were a computer. They were a machine that would do just about anything if you knew how to put the right information in it. Now you get a computer and it's preloaded with all the software and all this kind of stuff. That's not the way it used to be when you first got a computer, personal computer. It had an operating system and that was about it. It was a clean slate. Now it was a powerful machine, but you had to put the data into the machine so that it would do what you wanted it to do. Right? That's the way your soul is. When God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Adam didn't know everything, but he knew a lot. How did he know? The Bible says God put Adam on the earth even before he made Eve. He put Adam on the earth and brought the animals before him and said, name those. He didn't send Adam to school and show him flashcards of something, you know, here's an animal, let's call it this. And then test him later on. Adam had the intellect to be able to know a lot of things about how the earth worked, to be able to name the animals, And he was smart enough to figure out none of the animals was satisfied. Where did he get that knowledge? Folks, here's what I want you to understand. Where does spiritual knowledge come from? See, your soul is a blank slate. The mind is a blank slate. Your will is a blank slate. Your emotions are a blank slate until they are influenced by some external force. External doesn't mean outside or physical. External means something outside of the soul itself. 
Your soul can be programmed. Adam's soul was programmed. He was programmed with God's knowledge. Now, not all of God's knowledge. I believe that's a lot of what the walking with Adam in the cool of the day and uh, ever ever afternoon was about. I believe that was God talking to Adam and Adam saying, hey, I saw this over there. What's that about? At least that's what I would imagine it would be if you're in a brand new creation. One of only two living individuals. I'd have a lot of questions. But Adam's intellect was staggering. And where did that knowledge come from? God didn't breathe into his mind knowledge. He breathed into Adam the breath of life. Your soul is supposed to gain knowledge from your spirit. From the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. The source. You've got the same source of life that Adam did when God put him in the, in the Garden of Eden. And it's supposed to affect your soul. Just like it affected Adam's. Now, we know the story how Adam and Eve fell. Why did Adam and Eve fall? Because she allowed some external influence. In this case, it was influence from the physical realm, Satan speaking to her in a physical manner, to influence her thinking and therefore her action. Her mind was first affected by the words of the serpent. Then it changed her will. Well, actually, I guess it affected her emotions. As soon as her mind took hold, it affected her emotions. She looked at the tree and saw that it was good. It created some emotional reaction within her, and then it changed her will against what God had spoken. Now, here's the same soul that was pre-programmed with the knowledge of God. We, We don't have as much information about Eve after she was created from the rib of Adam. But we have to assume that she had the breath of life in her as well. The life of God was in her, so her intellect would be superior as well. Certainly superior to any other created thing. I don't mean superior to Adam, but I can't see God making her dumber than him, can you? Doesn't seem like that would be the way that it would work. But now her soul is affected by external influences. And those external influences eventually, ultimately, affected her will, and so then it affected her action. And it messed everything up. Then for 930 years, Adam and Eve lived here on the earth, unlearning the things of God, learning instead, having their soul influenced, their mind, their will, and their emotions influenced by external forces now from a fallen world. And that's the condition man finds himself in now. Therefore, the Bible says, when we're made new creatures in Christ Jesus, therefore, if any man be in Christ, if any man, talking about the inside, the the inner man, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. One translation says, things pertaining to the old man have passed away. I like that. Things pertaining to the old man. But not the soul of man. You've still got the same wrong thinking that you had before, and that's why you have to do something about your mind. I remember Brother Hagin telling a story about uh, he was holding a meeting for a pastor uh, in a certain city, and 
And uh, they were there for a number of nights. And at the end of the, the service, it was just kind of the way that the church operated. At the end of the service, they would uh, just dismiss. And anybody that wanted to come up to the altar would just come and pray. And it was a, a common practice for that church. And so a lot of times people would, would do in that. So Brother Hagin said people would come up. And, you know, not a lot of people necessarily. But some folks would come up and they'd pray around the altar. So he'd just kind of walk around among the people. And he'd be praying, you know, kind of to himself and and um, just, you know, in, being involved. And he said uh, uh, for three nights there was a young lady, a lady that looked like she was in her late 20s. She came and just fell over the altar rail. And she'd just cry out to God, just heart-wrenching cries. Well, after the third night, or uh, the third night when it happened, Brother Hagin had uh, recognized her for the, all three nights. And, uh, and so he just kind of said to himself, Lord, she sounds like her heart's breaking, like somebody's dying. What's wrong? What's wrong with this young girl? And he said immediately he saw it. As soon as he asked the Lord, the Lord showed him. He said it was like it played off in front of him like in, off of a TV screen. So he went to the pastor and he said, uh, Brother, that, uh, that young girl over there, do you know her? He said, Oh, yeah, Brother Hagin, she's a member of our church. And he said, um, Do you know what's wrong with her? And the pastor said, Well, yeah, do you? And Brother Hagin said, Yeah, the Lord showed me. And he said, um, uh, he, the, the pastor said, uh, uh, something like, well, Brother Hagin, you need to know it's a terrible situation. It's a sad. Well, actually, I think Brother Hagin even shared a little bit of it. He said, uh, yes, yeah, she's going to divorce her husband. She's been married for two years and going to divorce her husband. She, and the pastor added to it and said, yeah, that's true. We've counseled with her, stayed up with her all night on several occasions. It's just a terrible situation. And, and Brother Hagin said, well, the Lord showed me uh, what it is and, and why the, the cause of it is and, and so forth. And he said, but I'm not going to talk to her on my own. You're the pastor here. And so if, uh, if you think it would be appropriate for me to, to talk to her, then, uh, then I want you and your wife to, to come with us and, and we can go to your study or wherever, somebody, somewhere private, because I might have to talk pretty plain to her. And the guy said, oh, Brother Hagin, if you can help her, we'd love it. Just, just do what you can. Brother Hagin said, oh, yeah, I can help her. No question about it. So they brought her into the pastor's study, and, which is right off the auditorium, I guess. And, and uh, uh, I won't go into all the details, but uh, uh, the short of the story was she had been married to her husband for two years, and they'd never been able to have sex. And the reason for that is because when she was nine years old, she came home one day and found her mother in, in bed with another man. And so every time she and her husband would get ready to have sex, now they'd been married two years and hadn't, they hadn't done anything yet. Every time they'd get ready to do it, every time she'd try to work herself up to where, okay, tonight's the night, that kind of stuff, she, this image would flash in front of her, and she'd just freeze up and just mess up the whole thing. So she, uh, Brother Hagin shared with her, here's what the Lord told me, and so forth, and she confirmed every bit of it and wondered, she wasn't familiar with this kind of stuff and wondered how in the world this is going to, you know, um, how this works, why God would show this, and, and so forth. And, and so finally, Brother Hagin said, now, the Lord also shows me that you're going to divorce your husband. And that's what you're crying about in the altar because you still love him. Your heart knows that this is wrong. But you're, you're, um, uh, you're crying because you're sad about this thing. She said, well, yeah, that's right. As a matter of fact, I've already filed for divorce. And so she, he's, Brother Hagin said, well, you still love him, though, don't you? She said, oh, yeah, Brother Hagin, I really do. But I can't perform as a wife, and so it's not fair to him. And, you know, on and on and on. So Brother Hagin said, all right, now, here's what you need to know. What you need to know is what your mother did when you were a little girl was wrong. But that doesn't have anything to do with you and your husband. Because you having sex with your husband is a holy thing in the sight of God. It's a good thing. It's right. It's something that God says a lot about in his word. And so he opened the word and he showed her some things. 
from the word. Well, she was greatly encouraged. She said, well, I never knew that. I never knew that was in there. And so he gave her some, some simple exercises to do, begin to say these words, begin to confess these things. His, uh, uh, his meeting ended at the end of the week, and, uh, but he came back and held a meeting there in that town uh, a year later. And a year later, they had her and her husband. Her husband had gotten saved and filled with the Holy Ghost. And her and her husband had a little boy, and they named him Kenneth. Well, here's my point. What was it that stopped her from enjoying the blessings that God intended for a husband and wife to have? Wrong thinking. She had a roadblock in her thinking that was uh, as a result of the experience that she had. Now, folks, this is not an uncommon thing. Paul wrote to the Corinthians about this because the Corinthians asked him about marital relations. First Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, defraud not one another. Let me ask you a question. How long was it that Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden after the fall before they started saying no to each other? They had to learn it somewhere. At what point do we, as human beings, begin to think according to the way of the world instead of what the Word says? How does that work? Let me give you another example. I've got a friend that's uh, transitioning in a church, church uh, that was pastored... Uh, by another fellow, and the pastor's retiring. Real good church, solid church, just outstanding place. Well, there's some resistance. Pastor's doing a good job, but there's some resistance on the part of the people because he's not the old pastor. Well, folks, the old pastor's not coming back no matter what. But some people, you know, they've kind of got their foot in the ground, uh, you know, dragging their heels and that kind of stuff. So I was talking to him not, to, not too long ago, and I said, well, look, how's things going? I know, you know, anytime there's a change like this, Anytime you make a step forward and, and so forth, you always outgrow some people. That's one of the saddest things about pastoring is the people you outgrow on the way. Because some people get to a point where they're not going to change. This is it. We're not going to change anymore. We're stuck. And God doesn't stay put for them. So you wind up losing those folks. The church goes forward and they wind up dropping off. And so I knew there was going to be some people that would, that would be the case. And, and I expected that he knew it too. But, you know, I was trying to help him a little bit and encourage him along the way. And he said, well, Pastor Mike, he said, we've lost some. You know, some people aren't going to go with the new thing, you know, just because I am who I am and I'm not the other guy and so forth. He said, but the church has grown. In just a couple of months, the church is up 200 people. You know, on a Sunday morning, he said, the church has grown. He said, and last Sunday morning, we had such a move of God in our service. He said, but to show you how, what we're dealing with, he said, we had a real move of God in our service last Sunday morning, and somebody came up to me at the end of the service and said, Pastor, I don't believe that you let somebody stand on that platform wearing blue jeans. And he's thinking, really? That's what you're concerned about? We just had a move of God in our service, and you're worried about how somebody's dressed? It apparently didn't affect the Holy Ghost any because he moved. But these are the traditions that make the Word of God of none effect. Now, I'll guarantee you, I don't know who the person was, don't know what the situation was, but I'll guarantee you that person missed the move of God in the service that day because of what they thought, the way they thought that it was supposed to be. We had a guy come to our church many, many years ago, and, uh, and boy, he was rough. A long hair, and it, it wasn't just long. It was long and unkempt and stringy, and it was, oh, it just it was nasty. But he came to church and, and, uh, and just rough as can be and got saved. And almost immediately, his, everything about him changed. Because now all of a sudden there's a light on his face. I mean, the, the people that, that, 
you know, we're, we're loving him by faith to begin with. Now, all of a sudden, he's a lovable person and so forth. But there were still some people in the church that now that he is saved, they received him before when he was unsaved. But now that he's saved, they want to clean him up. So they started telling him what he ought to do. Started telling him how he ought to cut his hair and how he ought to do this. Well, he's just brand new saved. And, and he just, you know, kind of bowed his back over it. He wasn't going to have anybody tell him what to do. He got offended by it and came to me and, and uh, said something. Pastor Mike, do you know what people are telling me and so forth? And, and, uh, and I had people coming to me. What are you going to do about that? So I'm not going to do anything about it. If God saved him, let God clean him up. It's not my problem. God called him, God will clean him. Well, people, in, people that were concerned about it didn't like that at all. They thought I was just shirking my responsibility. Like it's my job to figure out how you're supposed to dress and look and all that stuff, you know. And, and the more, you know, I, the more I acted casual about it, the worse it got for some of the people and, and, and the worse it got for him. And he started getting a bad attitude and said, I just don't know if I'm going to come to church here or not anymore and that kind of stuff. He said, here, these people acted like they loved me, but now they're, they're trying to fix me and change me and all this kind of stuff. So I talked to him. I said, look, I said, don't bother about it. I said, first of all, the Bible said God looks on the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. Now, folks, what I'm talking about is the blocks that we have in our soul that make the word of God of none effect. What I'm really talking about is spiritual knowledge. I'm talking about letting our soul be influenced by the right thing instead of the wrong thing. Because that's what releases the power of God in our lives. So I just told him, I said, just forget about it. If they're not going to walk in love, then you do it. You walk in love toward them. Well, he decided he was going to do that. I said, just let it wa- you know, roll off of your back like water off of a duck's back. Just forget about it. Just leave it alone. And so he said, well, okay, I'll do that. I said, I'm on your side. I don't care. None of it matters to me. And so just leave it alone. So he said, okay, that's what I'm going to do. So he kept coming and kept coming and kept coming, wanted to get involved in the helps ministry. And we said, yeah, sure, glad to have you involved and all this kind of stuff. Just growing in the things of God, continuing to increase in the knowledge of God and so forth. And finally, after everybody else, he kind of outweighed everybody that was trying to make him clean up. Finally, one day he comes in, he's clean shaven, he's cut his hair. I mean, he looked like a new person that shocked everybody. So I asked him after church, he was kind of standing around. And I said, well, that's a different look for you. He said, yeah. He said, you know what? He said, God's been dealing with me about this for a couple of months. And he said, I just said no to it because everybody was giving me such a hard time. But I realized that wasn't right. So I got my heart right with the Lord and did what he wanted me to do. And this is the way I believe that he wanted me to look. But what happens so often is we judge things from the outside. We let some external force, usually physical, something from the physical realm, influence our thoughts about things. And we don't see somebody's heart. We don't see where they came from. We may look at them from the outside and say, well, I'd never dress like that. Or I wouldn't keep my hair like that. Or I wouldn't look like that. Or whatever the case might be. But you, maybe you didn't come from where they came from. And so we let our thinking be influenced by the wrong things. In other words, we're putting the wrong data into the computer. Your soul has the, cap- the capacity, the capability to bring about every blessing that Jesus purchased in your life. But it's up to you to keep the wrong thoughts from, out- from influencing and creating a, a, a break in this data system. 
I don't know if that's the right way to say it as far as computers are concerned, but you know what I mean. Your soul is designed to be that which gives expression to your spirit. But it has to be renewed by the word. It has to have the right information. It has to have spiritual knowledge going in it. That spiritual knowledge comes from one and only one source. Jesus said in John 6, 63, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. There's only one source of information that brings about the power of God's word, and that is allowing the word of God to have an impact in our hearts. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We're made in your image, spirit beings who have a soul which consists of the mind, the will, and the emotions and who live in a body. Father, thank you for the privilege of our spirits to express your word, your will, and your purpose in this natural life. Reveal to us, Holy Spirit, you are the spirit of truth. Reveal to us the things that we need to change. The traditions, the preconceived notions and reasonings that we hold to and may not even know that we're doing it that hinder the word of God from being powerful and rich and full in our lives. Father, we make ourselves available to change any and every thought to allow the word of God to be the judge of the thoughts and the intents of our souls so that our will is conformed to your will so that your word becomes our word so that our spirits are conductors for the love of God the goodness of God and the power of God for it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.